Whoa. I see Bill like standing back there. Wow, I wasn't on. Could you all hear me? I'm loud. You should see me in a movie theater. Uh, My wife says I cannot whisper at all. Uh, So here we go. Psalm 15. Uh, We stand when we read God's word. We do this simply as a a means of reminding ourselves this book that comes from God is unlike any other book. It is inerrant and infallible. It comes with the full authority of God inspired by him for the purpose of equipping Uh, for teaching and for correcting us in righteousness. So here we go, Psalm 15. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt, and does not change, who does not, put out money, who does not put out his money at interest, and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Psalm. And Lord, I pray that as we look at this psalm today, that your spirit would work powerfully in our hearts, that we would we would understand the character of a disciple. And we would see really a picture of how you're transforming us more into your image, into the image of your son, Jesus. Lord, I pray that as we walk through this list of character qualities, that your spirit would work in our hearts, that we would see how your grace works these in us. And that we would Uh, I pray already begin to see how you are working these things in us and we would have confidence and hope in our salvation because we could see that your grace is at work in us. Lord, I pray if anyone in here does not know you that through the, the preaching of your word today they would understand who you are and how you have sent your son Jesus to die on a cross that we could be saved, forgiven, and brought into your family forever. God, bless the preaching of your word now. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. Um, so real quick, the structure of this psalm is, is not a difficult one to decipher. It begins with a question, we're then given an answer, and then we're given a promise. And so that's, that's how we're going to make our way through. So we'll begin with the question, and that's in verse 1. Verse 1 we read, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent, who shall dwell on your holy hill? Now the word tent refers to the tabernacle. The tabernacle in the Old Testament was like the mobile sanctuary of God. It was used as Israel was making their way through the wilderness before Solomon built the more permanent temple. Uh, The tabernacle was where um, God's presence would be made known amongst his people. And when David brought the tabernacle to Jerusalem, he put it on Mount Zion, which is a hill where eventually the more permanent temple would be built. So when it says, uh, when it refers to your tent and the holy hill, it's referring to the place that God would make his presence known. So the question really is, who can come into the presence of God? Who can enjoy God's presence? Can anyone come into his presence? Does it matter how we live? What does it look like coming into his presence? So this is our question. Very likely, a psalm like this would have been taught uh, to the Hebrew children as they're making their way several times 
to, uh, to the tabernacle or to the temple uh, where they would worship God. They would be taught this psalm. And so let's look at the answer that David gives. David's answer goes from verse 2 uh, to the uh, second to last, or to the almost the last line of verse 5. And his answer consists of character qualities. He's describing the lifestyle of a believer. Now we need to understand what he is not asking. He is not asking how is it we come into the presence of God. That would be a question of justification. The answer would be by grace. Because we know, and we've taught many times, the Bible is very clear, uh, we're born in this world as sinners, and in, a, and in our sinfulness, there is nothing we can do to earn our way into God's presence. According to the Bible, sin is being in rebellion to God. It is lawlessness. And apart from God's grace, what we see in God's word is that every desire of our heart is opposed to God's desires. And so David is not asking, how is it, how is it that it's possible that we come into his presence. That would be justification. Jesus has come, died on a cross, that through uh, our grace, uh, through faith in him, we would be justified, declared righteous. David is asking, what is the character of a person who comes into God's presence? Or to say it this way, what does it look like to be saved? So that's what he's addressing here. Um, if we go into the New Testament, James one of the writers in the New Testament, writes an entire book answering the same question about what it looks like to be saved. If we get confused, we inevitably, be, we inevitably begin to think that we somehow must earn our way into God's presence. So if we think this is a list of how, how it's possible to come into his presence, then these become check marks. Okay, am I doing this? Am I doing this? Am I doing this? These become things. Okay, i got to do this to, to earn my way into his presence. And when that happens, we become like Catholics, Hindus, Buddhists, Muslims, Mormons, and so many other religions th that think that our good deeds must somehow outweigh our bad deeds. So to be clear, the question David is asking is, what is the character of of the person who will live with God. That's what we're addressing here. And so David answers by describing the Christian life, a life of holiness, a life lived in devotion to God. His list of qualities describes someone who's been saved by grace, adopted in God's family, made a part of God's kingdom, and been given the Holy Spirit to guide and to empower him. So before we look at his answer, I just want to, encourage you challenge you how would you answer the question how would you answer how should a christian live and especially if you're a parent you need to know how would i answer this question if my child will say what does it look like to be a christian how would i begin to answer them if someone at work says okay you go to church what does that look like what, what is what is the life of a christian now i imagine that as we begin talking about works, um, someone or someone's ears begin to say, aren't we saved by grace? Um, no one's perfect. Why are we going to focus on works? As long as we accept Jesus, we're good, right? I think, I think it's often what we think. As soon as the word works gets thrown out, we want to quickly throw grace up there. It's like, hold on here. We don't want to cross any lines. We don't want to emphasize works too much because we're saved by grace, right? Well, yeah, we are saved by grace, and this grace saves us to work. 
So what we want to do is see what this grace does in our life. And so what I will first want to do is I just want to read some passages. And as I read these passages, I just want you to think, what is it that they say about the Christian life? Because when we come into the Bible, while it emphasizes works a great deal, or while it emphasizes grace, it emphasizes this grace that transforms us so that we would live in a particular way. And so uh, let me just read some verses. These are going to be up on the screen. 1 John chapter 2. And we could have just read the whole book of 1 John because the whole book of 1 John describes how we live. But it says, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. So how is it that we, know, that we know if we know Jesus? Do we obey? Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. 1 John chapter 3, verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. If you want, we preached through 1 John last summer. Uh, I encourage you to just go and look at any of these passages that we walked through. Ephesians chapter 1, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, so, okay, so he chose us before the foundation of the world, for what purpose? That we should be holy and blameless before him. So the purpose of the choosing was that we would be holy and blameless. 1 Thessalonians 4, 7, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. John 13, 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples. How will they know? If you have love for one another. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. James chapter 2. And just so you know, we're going to be preaching through James starting in September. So this sermon is largely like a prequel to that. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does, but does not have works? Can that faith save him? So can a faith that does not produce works, is that real faith? That's the question. So hear this. A faith that does not produce good works, works according to Scripture, that glorify God, is not real faith. Just as the fruit of a tree reveals the health of a tree, so our works reveal the quality of our faith. When we think of, I think the problem is, is we limit salvation often to a decision. And oftentimes we'll say, well, yes, I know I'm saved because 25 years ago I made this decision and we base um, our confidence on a decision. And oftentimes, you'll talk to people, and you probably know them. Uh, Someone who says, <clears throat> I came to Christ 25 years ago. I don't read the Bible. I don't go to church. I don't do anything. But I know I'm saved because I made that decision a long time ago. And oftentimes, when we think that our salvation it is, a, is a decision, we begin to think that works is more optional. But we shouldn't limit our salvation to this idea of a decision alone. Because it's not merely a decision, but it's a transformation that takes place in our hearts. Scripture says that Jesus came 
to die on a cross because we are dead in our sins. Because what that means is we're dead in our sins, meaning all we do is sin. We have no spiritual life in us that that is for God's glory, that seeks to honor Him, that seeks to love Him. But rather, as we said earlier, every desire of our heart is opposed to God's desire. And so Jesus comes to die on a cross so that His Spirit would come upon us, that He would transform us, that He would take us, what Ephesians says, from spiritual death, to spiritual life. What we saw in 1 John, we'd go from children of the devil to children of God. That we'd be given his spirit to live within us, to empower us and to strengthen us. That we'd be adopted into his family and that we'd be citizens of his kingdom. This is why at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, which is, which is Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, this is what Jesus says in Matthew seven twenty one: Not Everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So so the point is, if we just say, I know Jesus, I'm good, right? No. Do you know Jesus and you've trusted in him? And that his spirit is in you, working in you? That you've been not only saved by grace, but transformed by this grace? This is how we must begin to see salvation. Again, we're not saved by works, but this grace that saves us transforms us that we would work. That's Galatians or Ephesians 2:10. Ephesians 2:8, you've been saved not by works but through grace, but through faith. And and then it says in 2:10, the purpose of this saving is that we would do the works that God has prepared for us. Now, if we downplay holiness, or think that holiness doesn't matter, meaning it's okay if we don't really live for God. Obedience isn't really that big a deal. We misunderstand the very purpose for which God has saved us, and we actually doubt and misunderstand the very Spirit who now dwells within us that we would live like Jesus. So as we turn and we look at this list of character qualities David gives us, um, let us realize he's describing what it is for the Spirit to work in us. So if you're here as a Christian, as we go through this list, while we probably, well, none of us will meet it perfectly, it should be describing things that the Spirit is doing within us. And so as we jump in, quick uh, literary tip, as we are in the Psalms, uh, what we're going to come across a lot of times is a thing called parallelism. Parallelism is when uh, the author is going to say uh, the same thing in, in another line, but with slightly different words. Kind of like if you go back to verse 1 and we read uh, the word tent and holy hill, both of those refer to God's presence. And so he's referring to the same thing with slightly different wording to drive home uh, a point that he's trying to make. And as we make our way through, what we're going to see is this isn't a list of 10 or 12 qualities, but really it's a list of Six qualities that uh, David is going to give us that describes a Christian. <clears throat> so we're going to make our way through uh, and make a few comments on them as we go. Uh, the first one is regarding our character, and we see this in verse 2, where he says, He who walks blamelessly and does what is right. You see the parallelism? One is, one is negative, without blame, and the other one is, is more of a positive way of saying it, he who does what is right. But they're both min- they're both focusing on the same idea of our character. And really, this quality 
is a summary of everything else and of the Christian life. Blamelessness means without blame. Just as Jesus lived a blameless life, so now his spirit is at work in us that we would live like him. And notice the verbs walk and do. We see those in verse 15, uh, or verse 2, who walks blamelessly, who does what is right. These verbs are in the active tense, meaning they're what we do. We're to be intentional in this process. It means I need to think about my actions. So I need to think about things like, should I spend time alone with someone of the opposite sex? Should I have accountability for my internet usage? Many of the women just finished reading um, a book called uh, The Hole in Our Holiness by Kevin DeYoung. That was the July uh, book club for the women here. I encourage you, if you have not read that, to go pick it up. You can pick it up on Amazon or anywhere else. A very, very good book all on holiness. Uh, One of the questions he asked, which I read the book years ago, and I still remember the question because it changed some of the things that Steph and I watched. Uh, But the question was, am I being entertained with the very things that God condemns? The things that I watch on TV, the movies that I watch, are they the very things that God condemns? And is, Is that what I laugh at? Is that what entertains me? Is that what I binge watch over the weekend? Um, in fact, the author of The Hole in Holiness um, put out quite a few things on the Gospel Coalition. The Gospel Coalition is a great uh, Christian website uh, that you can find a lot of good things on. And so he actually writes regarding holiness and actually presses further on that question about what we watch. And he mentions specific shows like Game of Thrones and other stuff. Um, and what was, what was incredible is that on uh, that thread of comments, Christians begin to tear into him and say, how dare you question what I watch? Who are you to think that you can call into question you know, what I watch in my living room or the movies? If we want to watch Game of Thrones, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, now, personally, I've never watched Game of Thrones, uh, but what I understand, it's full of sexual morality, lust, murder, debauchery, and that's pretty much all that it is the entire time. Uh, and there's many other things that are out there, uh, But when we come into this idea of what is it that we're watching? What is it that we're entertaining? What what is it that we're being entertained by? I encourage you, what is it that you watch? What is it that you're being entertained by? And oftentimes I think we get get upset at these moments saying, well, hold on. Is he he trying to make a list of shows? No. I I think the Holy Spirit does a pretty good job pressing on our consciences uh, on things that we should watch and things that we shouldn't watch. And maybe you're sitting here and you watch Game of Thrones. This might be the very means in which God's saying, that's probably not the show that should be entertaining you. But there might be other things as well. Now, you might be sitting here going, okay, so I can't watch anything on TV? I I don't know. Maybe the things you watch, you can't watch anything on TV. Um, Or maybe there's many things that you can watch. Uh, I think we need to be aware of how the Spirit is working in us in in question. Am Am I doing what is right with what I watch? Am I being blameless? Now, I think we can all admit there's like no perfect TV show. So maybe the Spirit works in you and says you shouldn't have a TV. Maybe. Or maybe it just affects the very things that you do watch. But I encourage you to question, to wrestle with with those issues. Uh, Our character as Christians is meant to please God and build others up. Walking in blamelessness also means uh, that we're concerned with how our actions are going to affect others. 
this last week, my wife and I, we, we take the kids, we go to the fair. I'm not the biggest fair person. Just not, maybe it's because they, they take all my money. Um, maybe it's many other reasons, but just not the biggest fair. But the kids love the fair, so went to the fair. This is actually my first time to go to the fair here in six years. So I've, I was feeling like, I, I need to go. I need to support what my kids love. And so they had lots of fun. They laughed, uh, and it was good times. But I have to say, I think my wife and I both were aware very much of what many of the women were wearing or were not wearing. <laughs> um, we need to be cautious. And, and I say this to women, you, you cannot prevent a guy from lusting. Okay, like you, you can't make a guy not sin, but you can help a guy not sin through the dress that you wear. And, and when it comes to our character and what we do as Christians, think about how we do what is right without blame. How are we looking out for our brothers and sisters? How is it we guard them as well? We need to realize our actions are going to affect others. So while we can't control if people will sin or not, we can take control of our very own actions and how can we help others in certain ways. Um, we need to realize our lives are meant to be a testimony to God's grace in us. So we have walking in blamelessness. That's the first one, doing what's right. Next, it's our speech. And we see that in, in the second part of verse 2, going into verse 3, he talks about he who does not slander, or he who speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue. Again, you see how these are parallel? Both kind of addressing the tongue. So we need to ask, how do we speak? How do we speak in front of people? How do we speak behind people? Do your words build people up, or do they tear others down? Interestingly, if you go to the Gospel of John, you're going to see that the Father is called uh, the Father of truth. Jesus says that He is truth. The Spirit is called the Spirit of truth. And God's Word is called true. Everything God says and does is true and trustworthy. There is no deceit in His mouth. Everything He says is full of grace, is full of love, is seasoned that way. And that is how we are to speak through the work of the Spirit in us. Now, I'm a pretty direct person. Many of you pretty much know that. Um, I, I like to say things the way that they are. I don't like to sugarcoat things. It just feels like we're just delaying the conversation a lot, you know. Uh, ben and I get, well, get, a well, get, get along very well here because he's pretty direct, I'm pretty direct, and we just kind of we do that really well with each other. Um, I'm sure some of you are like that. Some of you probably take a lot of pride in that. Yes, I'm very direct. I just like to say things the way they are. Um, but we've got to be careful. Because if we're not careful, we can use this as an excuse to talk however it is that we want. Our words can be coarse and they can be unloving. Rather than thinking about how, how to best speak, how can the message we have be best received, we do what is easy for us and we just speak and we let the kind of the cards fall where they will have you ever seen that are you guilty of that i'm a direct person and really what we're saying and i and i throw myself in this because this is where i've been i don't really care how you receive it i just want to say it it's a very unloving way to speak to others and i he, and i think that we do that a lot um i know that this has been an area that i've been guilty on uh often our words come across like porcupine quills 
rather than gentleness and seasoned with grace. Um, men, I think especially when we get along with other guys, sometimes our words can be sarcastic and our joking can be crude. I think what, what this part of, verse, of chapter 15 is doing, he's bringing to attention, how do we use our words? Do we build each other's up? Do we use prayer requests as a means to gossip? Because that happens. I think we all know that one. But how do we use our words? How do we encourage each other? How do we build each other up? Even when we're, do, do, we, do we use the excuse of venting just to talk bad about people at times? I just need to vent. And I get it. Sometimes we just need to communicate some things. But, but how are we doing that? What is the purpose of that? I think this part of chapter 15 is, is trying to bring to attention. How do we use our tongue? How do we do it with our neighbors, with those we know? How do we, how do we, how do we speak to those when we're not with people? Next, we go into conduct. Verse 3, uh, kind of the, the rest of verse 3, which says, uh, does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up reproach against his friend. Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love God. The second greatest is to love our neighbor. So um, I think the question is, how do we love others? Are we loving others? The word reproach means to openly disrespect or to shame. So I, I think we're meant to then ask, is there anyone at home, at work, at school, or in any other place that I'm at that I'm not treating with love? Is there someone that I'm intentionally ignoring intentionally neglecting, intentionally shaming. Sometimes we might begin to do this subconsciously because someone has hurt us, so all of a sudden we begin to hurt them back. Maybe we're just shorter uh, in, in our patience with them. Or maybe we have no patience with them. And maybe we use that as a reason for, you know, they've done this, so it's okay for me to do this, this, and this with them. But our very conduct, how do we treat those who, who do not love us? And how do we treat those who do love us? In fact, Ben gives a great testimony of the, the missionary who's in, or the Christian who's in India, who is slapped in the face. And what does he do? He, he loves the person back. He reads scripture to him. And now he's given an opportunity to share the gospel in the guy's village. Um, we need to question our, our character. How is it that we're treating one another? Our values. Verse 4. A vile person is despised, but... Um, but who honors those who fear the Lord. So we, we despise the vile person, but we honor those who fear the Lord. To despise a vile person does not mean we do not love them. This is not the excuse. See, I don't love this guy. This guy this guy's evil. He's a sinner. I don't have to love him. That's not what it's saying. But rather, it means we do not honor the one who does evil. Rather, what do we do? We value and honor the one who who fears the Lord. So here is a call for us as Christians to be especially concerned with Christians. Galatians 6.10 says that we are to do good to everyone, and then at the end it says, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. As Christians, we are to honor those who fear the Lord. We're to come alongside and support and to strengthen. This is what we're saved to. We're saved to be a body. We're saved to be the family of Christ. And so how we help one another, serve one another, meet one another's needs is all a testimony of God's grace within us. So what does that look like? A couple ways. Come, come early, stay late on Sundays. Come to be with the body of Christ. Honor people here by coming early, by spending time with each other, by staying late, by going to coffee during the week or doing meals with one another. 
help those who are struggling with various trials, whether that's praying for them here, whether that's meeting them throughout the week and praying for them, whether that's taking meals when people are sick. As Christians, we are the family of Christ, the body of Christ. Our love for one another is to show unbelievers what does the kingdom of God look like. The way we honor one another should just be a brilliant light in this world as people see, wow, this community of believers, are, this community that gets together, they have all these different hobbies. They have all these different likes and dislikes. But what holds them together is the grace of Christ. And that's evident in how they love and how they encourage one another. Our integrity. Look at, look at verse 4. But who, um, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Have you ever told someone that you would help them, but later something better came up uh, in your schedule, so you got out of helping them? Has that ever happened? No. Never. Um, swearing to our own hurt means we commit to helping people even when we know it will inconvenience us. Jesus left the comfort and glories of heaven in order to come to earth where he'd be beaten and killed so that we would be saved. He committed to saving us at the expense of his own life. And really, I hope what you're seeing here as we're making our way through uh, this list, it's really a description of Christ. All of this is who Christ is. And so this description is really what the work of the Spirit is doing in our life to make us more into the image of Christ. So I ask you, do you help others only when it is convenient with your schedule? I think if we're not careful, we can fall into that. And admittedly, we all have busy schedules. We all have things that we want to do. And I think we can always hide behind that. Um, serving others when it's difficult, when it's costly, is a powerful way to show others the love of Christ. And I don't think we have to make it known. You know, I'm here, but I really had something else to do. Like, I don't think we have to let them know there, were, there was a cost. But at times, it'll just be made known. But how do we serve? It's great when it's convenient. Like, I love those times, don't you? I mean, those, those are the best times. But we also need to think about, do I serve when it's inconvenient? Because when we look at the gospel, what we really see is that as Christ comes, he leaves all comfort, all glories, everything that was a benefit to him in that sense, he sets aside that he would come Live a life here, suffer and die. And what's the point? That the, that the power of the gospel would go forth, that we'd be saved. And so now as we live like him, we have the, uh, we have the privilege of showing the love of Christ. Money. We see this at the end. Does not put out money at interest, does not take a bribe against the innocent. The point here is that our love for money is never to eclipse our love for others and our love for justice. In Deuteronomy 23, we read that the Jews were not allowed to charge, <coughs> to charge one another for interest. They were to help out of love, not in order to get something back. It wasn't, I'll scratch your back, so then later you will scratch my back. Again, think of Jesus. He came and died on the cross. He didn't do this so we would owe him one. So that we would pay him back in some way. So do we give freely? And, and honestly, 
I think we do a pretty incredible job with this as a church, as a whole. I mean, just this, this last week, this last week I came and, and we had a need and after we presented the need for supporting the, the pastor in India who was thrown out of his house, lost all of his belongings, he and his wife and his family sleep under a tree, um, together us, and there was, uh, there was a couple of other churches that became involved, over $4,000 was sent, which was far more than what was needed to buy a house and land, which is crazy, right? A house and land for $4,000. And enough to then furnish the house and everything else that they need. Um, when we bring needs, you guys are amazing. In fact, if you look at the back of the bulletins, what is given and what is needed right now to budget, we're ahead. And we've been ahead for the last couple years. And that's really God's grace working in us. Uh, that's a huge testimony of just God working in us. And so I, I praise God for what he's doing and how money uh, largely, I don't think it's been something that we're trying to cling to and say, no, I'm going to hoard my money, but largely what God has done in our church, and it's just amazing, uh, the testimony of his grace is that we're freely holding it up, and I know that many of you are giving to the point that it's affecting budgets and a lot of other things in your life, and that's a powerful testimony of God's grace. Our money is a gift from God, is to be used to help meet the needs of others. How do you handle your money personally? Largely, I, I would say it looks like we're doing well, but I think on an individual level, we need to wrestle with this also. I guess there would be two things I'd want to say um, as we come and we look at this list all together. Two truths. Number one, God's grace affects every area of our life. In Genesis 1, we see that we're created to image God. But because of sin, we no longer perfectly image God. I don't think they're at the Thurston County Fair this year. But have you ever been to, you know, the fairs or the carnivals where they got those distorted mirrors? You know, the ones that like either make you like super skinny and tall or really short and fat. And we're all happy though those mirrors really aren't real. Um, but what they do is they all kind of pervert the image of what we are. They do not accurately show who we are. That's what sin does to us. No longer do we accurately um, image God. But we're now, we're now perversion of that image. But through Jesus Christ... We're being transformed to once again image God. All of our life, all of our actions is being transformed, that they'd be holy, that we would image God, and we have the hope, what we're told in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, is that one day when Jesus returns, we will be made perfect like Him. So right now is the process of being made like Him. When Christ returns, that process will be finished and we'll be fully like Him. We read of this like in Romans 8, 29. It says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So, in past eternity, when God is, is working out salvation, he's predestining, he's predestining people to be saved with the very purpose they would be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. The whole purpose of salvation is that we'd be made like Jesus God has saved us that we'd be a light in this world, that every, every area of our life would be transformed to image Jesus Christ, the very Son of God. So when we come across a, works, um, a list of works like this, what God is doing, He's helping us understand what the work, what the work of the Spirit is in us. Because we could go to passages, like in Matthew, 
where it says the greatest commandment is to love God. Second greatest commandment is to love one another. So we could simply say, guys, we're supposed to love one another, which we could put all of these categories under love for, for one another. But what this list does, it, it fleshes that out. What does it look like to love one another? It means to be blameless. It means to do what is right. It means it affects the way we speak. It affects the way we serve one another, the way we handle our money. And so what this does, this list becomes a list of things that we pray. And you can be confident that God will answer because these are the very things into which the Spirit is working in you. So you can say, God, help me to speak truth. Help me with the way I speak, um, use my tongue. Father, help me to honor those within the church. Help me to come alongside the church. Help me with the way I handle my money. These are things we know God will answer. They're in His Word, and we're told that this is what His Spirit is doing in us. So this now becomes a prayer list for us. So that's one way. We see God's grace is, um, we see that God's grace affects every area of our life. Secondly, we see that God's grace is needed each day to live the Christian life. There's a wrong way to read this passage. The wrong way is to read it and then pat yourself on the back thinking, I'm doing a pretty good job. Like, I I actually do all of these really, really well. Um, If you do that, you're probably missing the point. While this list instructs us how to live, it also exposes sin within us. Well, hopefully, we're we're doing a lot of this, but it's probably also going to be rubbing on us going, how am I doing that? There is some areas of sin in my life. This list of works is meant to produce humility. The only way we'll live out Psalm 15 is by grace. We're saved by grace, and, the, and we live the Christian life by grace. In fact, interesting, if you go back to the word um, uh, in, in verse 15, or in chapter 15, who shall dwell or who shall sojourn in your tent? That word sojourn refers to an alien resident who is only in the land because of permission or because of grace. So it sets up the very who who is allowed to come into God's presence, only those whom His grace has come upon. So it sets out at the very beginning, only those who will dwell, only those who will sojourn in the presence of God are those who have experienced His grace. And then it works out, and this is what it looks like to live out that life. It's only by grace we live the Christian life. The psalm ends with a promise. And we see that at the very end of verse 5. He who does these things shall not be moved. Do you see? Do you see the beauty of that promise? Do you see the joy of that promise? David's saying the one who lives a holy life will always live with God. Or say it this way, if we live like Jesus, then we will forever live with Jesus. Again, I think we've hit it many times. Our works do not save us. I don't I don't think we're confused there. Hopefully not. But they are a means of showing the validity of our faith. Our works are a means of providing assurance of our salvation. Our works testify to what our lives are built upon. So again, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Everyone then then who hears these words of mine and does them, so hears and does them, will be like the wise man who built his house on the rock. 
And the rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them. So what's, what's the hinge? The doing. Are we obeying or, or do we disobey? Everyone who hears and does not do them will be like the foolish man who builds his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, beat against the house, and it fell, and there was a great fall of it. That leads us to what is our life being built upon? If we've been saved by grace, it's being built on Christ. Our works will then demonstrate that. They are a means of our assurance. Now, I know that at this point, someone is thinking, but look, we're not perfect. We know we'll never keep this. Can we really have assurance? Um, Our present faults are never an excuse for not striving for holiness. So, so we're all going to fail in one way or another. We're, none of us are going to meet this perfectly. But God's Spirit is working in us, inclining our hearts to desire these things. Are we desiring them? Are we repenting when we do not, um, um, when, we, when we fail to meet them? Again, we're not saved by doing these things. But these give the validity of our faith. They're what our faith is producing within us. Sinclair Ferguson, uh, he wrote a book called Devoted to God. It's all about holiness. It's a really, really good book. Um, In one of his chapters, he gives five things that he says, um, as we live devoted to God, as we live a life of holiness, we need to remember these things. And and I think it's helpful here. Number one, these are your R's. Just so you know, as pastors, we have to use alliterations. It's part of the job requirement. Um, if it doesn't work, then we can't preach it. It's, have you ever seen that? Like, you just go to churches, and it's five R's, three S's, two T's. You know, I don't know. Um, anyways, I still think it's weird, but we do it. Uh, the first one is recognize. So what, what we have here is a call to live the Christian life. And if we live this way, we're going to have assurance that we're, we're saved. So one thing we need to recognize, there's a war between our flesh and the Spirit. There is a war. There are things my flesh within me does not want to obey God. I need to realize that. I'm not someone just neutral that I can just go either way. The Spirit is at work within me that I would obey, but there's a fleshly part in me that wants to disobey, that wants to fight against the Spirit. So I need to recognize there's a war. I need to remember that because of my salvation, I now have a new identity in Christ. I am saved. I am a child of God. I do not do these works to become a child. I do them because I am a child of God. Again, that goes back to the whole, we're saved by grace, not works. So we need to recognize there's a war. There's a war because I have a new identity in Christ. I am a child of God. Next, I need to realize that the Spirit has been given to me that I would live a life pleasing to God. So rather than go, man, I'm at this war, but I have no hope of actually obeying God. No. God not only has saved us, but given us His Spirit that we would live the way He's called us to. So if this list looks impossible to you, Remember, you have been given the very Spirit of God, the Almighty, Omnipotent Creator who spoke creation into existence, now dwells within you that we would live in a way that pleases God. We need to respond. 
We need to respond to the Spirit. The Spirit's in us to lead and guide us. Romans 8, 14 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Well, how does the Spirit lead us? Well, He leads us as we gather at a church like this. He leads us through Christian conversations as we hold one another accountable, as we urge each other into um, to grow into holiness he works in us when we read his word that that we would see areas of sin or, or things that we're to do in life to remind us of his truth and his promises the spirit works through the word he works through his people those are the primary ways in which the spirit works and we need to reap what we sow Galatians 6, 7, and 8 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So we need to know that there's a war within us. We've been saved by God, made into a child of God. His Spirit is now in us to lead and to guide us. And as we live the Christian life, we have the hope and the confidence that we will forever live in the presence of God. Because what we reap, or what we're sowing, we know that one day we will reap. We will reap this harvest of righteousness and living in the very presence of God. That's not only what Paul says in Galatians, but it's what we have right here in 15 verse 5. He who does these things shall never be moved. So again, this list is meant to produce joy and hope in Christians as we read it going, man, this is, this is evidence of my salvation. And as we see areas that we fall short, we go, this are areas for me to pray over, knowing that God's going to work in them, that I would be able to begin to obey in these areas. So I pray that as we go through a list like this, it doesn't feel like a burden being placed upon you that you're unable to, be, unable to meet. But you see that it is the very means in which the Spirit is working in you. And if this area and if this list uh, feels impossible, if you feel great conviction through much of it, no, the Spirit is in you. And that is His role. To also bring to conviction that we would confess and that we would follow Him as He guides us. Living a life of holiness is what we've been called for. It's the purpose of our saving. Our holiness does not save us, but it is the evidence of our salvation. And so let us take joy as we see evidence of our salvation. And when there's areas that are not showing it, those are areas to bring confession and repentance. And so what we're going to do now is we're going to go to communion, where we will um, 